0: to Nufikan. I am Irina, and today I am talking to Shrikan, who has recently finished his PhD at the University of Stockholm in physics. Hi Irina. Hi Shrikan. Let's start, as always, with discussing your field a bit and the place your research has in this field. Yeah, sure. Your thesis is called Non-Equilibrium Thermodynamics at the Microscopic Scales. Can you tell me briefly
1: what was your aim
0: in this thesis?
1: So yeah, in in this uh, thesis, we were trying to understand how does thermodynamic notions like heat, work, or energy transformations happen at a microscopic scale. So if we take a machine and go smaller in size into something like a nanometer scale, how does usual things that we know for microscopic machines, like we know how a car works or a train works, how does this happen in a microscopic scale. If I make a microscopic engine, how does it work efficiently? How do I look at its thermodynamics? This was my question in my thesis.
0: Why were you interested in characterising this kind of machines?
1: So there are two reasons to this study or two motivations to look at such problems. One is coming purely from a physics interest. I mean, we know how things work at a microscopic scale. Mostly we know. And then uh, if we Take the size smaller and smaller, does the laws of physics stay the same, first question. So we we are genuinely curious about how things work at a very small scale. And then the second one is of more practical interest. I mean, if we look at our computers or mobile phones, we are interested in making them smaller and smaller. Earlier, computers used to be of the size of a room. Now we have them as small as, you know, a tablet or maybe even smaller. So if we want to reduce these uh, machines to smaller size, we want to make their components also smaller. And then we want to know how they are working at a small scale. So in that practical regime also, my, my thesis, I hope, is relevant.
0: Okay, let's discuss some of the concepts yep. in the field. Thermodynamics, what
1: is it? Yeah. So thermodynamics is anything that is related to a temperature and some kind of energetics so so let's say we have we have a system that is in contact with the thermal reservoir i mean as simple as a car engine so now it it's doing some uh, work to move the car in our environment right i mean we have something like a room temperature around us and then a car is working in this temperature now we want to know how efficient it is working how much fuel it has to burn and how much work it is doing so these are notions of energy in, of a system in the presence of a temperature, and that is thermodynamics. So we look at dynamical systems where there is a fixed temperature in the environment, and we want to know how energy or heat and various things work at, uh, for such systems. This is a very old field, right? Did yeah, it is an old field. So mostly I think thermodynamics came into interest from the time of industrial revolution, So if you think about uh, industrial revolution, we realized that doing things with machines is more efficient than manual labor. And then we started to think about making machines which are more efficient also. And also provided you learn to convert some form of energy to some other form, then you want to do it more efficiently. And this is when uh, thermodynamics started to become very relevant. It has shifted over time. There has been, for example, for systems in what is called equilibrium. There was a theoretical framework for studying thermodynamics of such systems. Later, things become became smaller and things became what is called non-equilibrium. And then, uh, recent studies are more towards identifying thermodynamics at these non-equilibrium processes. And then, then recent, more recently, as I said, people are thinking of making machines smaller and smaller. And then you want to study the non-equilibrium thermodynamics of smaller systems. And this is where your work is placed. Smaller systems and non-equilibrium. Yeah, exactly. In my thesis, I mostly studied thermal systems. That we are looking at systems which are in contact with the thermal reservoir. So about
0: equilibrium, can you give some examples of systems that are not in equilibrium at both
1: microscopic and microscopic scales? Yeah, let's look at a macroscopic scale. So, so let's say we have... a oven which is set as uh, 200 degrees or something now we put uh, some food item inside like we are trying to cook something so we put some food item inside the oven now if I if I look try to monitor the temperature of the oven it will be 200 degrees but if I measure the temperature of the food item that I kept keeps on changing so it, it gives you a temperature reading which means that at that instant it has equilibrated, but then it will change immediately to some other higher number. So, at, at a later time it would have come to a highest value which which will never exceed this 200 and that will be more close to 200 degrees Celsius and then it will remain the same. So, then you say that the food item has reached an equilibrium state with respect to this oven at 200 degrees. So, that's like a microscopic system in equilibrium. Now, if you look at a microscopic system in equilibrium, some water which is lying outside our house and there is some pollen grain in this water. So now the water in Sweden right now if I look outside it could be something like 5 degrees temperature and then due to this 5 degrees temperature the molecules of the water will be shaking little bit like it will be moving around and so on. It's called Brownian motion of water molecules. Uh, it won't stay stationary, it will only stay stationary when the water freezes. So if I put a pollen grain in this water, it will also be moving around but it will move around just like water molecule is moving around and it will move around mostly because the water molecules are kicking it. So that system is an equilibrium system, that uh, pollen grain has sort of the same temperature notion as the other molecules in the this water at 5 degrees. But let's say we have another bacteria or another microorganism in the same, same water. But now the microorganism can move around, not because water is kicking it, because it is alive. It is spending energy, so it, it can move around on its own. So if you look at statistically, the motion of the bacteria will not be in equilibrium with the environment. So that's a non-equilibrium system and the pollen grain which is not a alive system so that's a small scale equilibrium system
0: so your work is in these small systems and it is in systems that are not alive your uh, your particles are more like the pollen grains right you call them colloidal particles
1: yeah so in my uh, study we intended to study uh, look at such small systems and as examples we looked at colloidal particles which are, so colloids are things which are not solvable in another solution. So if I put a colloid in water, it just doesn't dissolve there, it just stays as it is. It is rigid, but it's also like moving around easily in water. It is small enough that it can experience this thermal kicks and it's large enough that you can see it through a microscope. So the interesting point is we can do experiments with them and we can also mathematically model such systems. So that's why my focus has been mostly on colloidal non-equilibrium systems at small scales. And more concretely, what did you want to do to these systems
0: or to find out about them?
1: Yeah, so in my thesis, uh, we worked on two things. First thing was to make microscopic engines using colloidal particles and try to theoretically study their performance and come up with frameworks to analyze their performance. So this is the first part. And then the second part was using them as examples of non equilibrium systems and then try to understand some basic principles which can be generically applied to any non equilibrium system. So we think of this as toy models and then try if some principle works in these toy models and then we kind of argue that it might as well be working for a generic non equilibrium system which which we see in nature.
0: One particular problem you are interested in in the second part was the problem of distinguishing non equilibrium from equilibrium right
1: yeah in the second part of the thesis particularly uh, we tried to come up with a framework that distinguishes a non equilibrium system from an equilibrium system and not only that it also quantifies how far the system is from equilibrium so by this mean I mean if I look at if I go back to the previous example of pollen grain and the bacteria, if we were to record the video of a pollen grain and the bacterias with two different cameras and then let's say we just look at the video of where it went, it might look very similar. We may not be able to distinguish which one was a pollen grain and which one was a bacteria. But in our analysis, we try to look at the nature of their fluctuations in water and from this nature of fluctuations, we were able to say which one is a pollen grain I mean, um, we didn't explicitly look at a Pauling LinkedIn, but such systems. Which one will be an active non-equilibrium system and which one will be a passive equilibrium system? And then if it is a non-equilibrium system, how far is it from equilibrium? Uh, why would you want to distinguish between this? Because uh, most interesting systems in nature are non-equilibrium systems. And we always benefit from non-equilibrium systems because they are sources of energy and so on. I mean, they constantly dissipate energy to the environment. So we want to be able to study non-equilibrium systems. If we understand non-equilibrium systems better in nature, then we can also make make them in laboratories or hope to make them in laboratories and hope to make use of them. Have you worked with experimentalists? So uh, in the, the second half of my thesis, which is on quantifying non-equilibrium, we are trying to do this in experiments now. One of the experiments is of colloidal particles so we have colloidal particles in optical traps and then we we are tuning them in a particular way and then we are controlling their non equilibrium conditions and we are trying to see if by just measuring the fluctuations of this colloidal particle do i get the exact theoretically predicted value of how non equilibrium it is and in another experiment we are looking at cell membranes so these are cells fed with some food and then kept in a petri dish sort of a thing. And then we try to look at the membrane fluctuations of these cells. And then we are trying to see how much energy is it dissipating to the environment. And so we compare a dead cell versus an alive cell. And then we hope to see that the alive cell has more uh, non equilibrium dissipation.
0: I see. That is actually quite very very interesting. <laughs> I will change track a bit and ask you how did you end up doing a PhD and what, your, what was your background before you started?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I come from India. I was interested in science because of my mother. She used to tell me or show, ask me to read things related to science or tell me stories in science and so on. So I got interested in science. And then in India there, was, there were these uh, research institutes which were offering bachelor and master's program in science in general. And I took one of these BSMS programs, and then I got also exposed to scientific research. I mean, there were research laboratories; there were PhD students doing, working on the interesting problems. And as as a bachelor student or a master student, I could also join them in interesting projects. So then I got a flavor of you know doing a research, I, I, or as to, I, I I understood what is what is it meant by doing research, and then. Then I got interested in this, in their idea of doing a PhD. And I found this position in Sweden towards the end of my master's. And then, yeah, my supervisor, she found my CV very interesting. Then I came to Sweden. Did you feel prepared to do research when you started because of your exposure? So uh, I have seen a lot of PhD students and many of them were my friends while I did my master's also. So then from them, what I knew was that it's not an easy thing to do, but it's, it's challenging. And sometimes you feel like you are in a pressure cooker. But, you know, you get to learn. You 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 get the you have to keep your motivations until you get a result. And things have to just work once. So I have seen people working on a problem for years. And like two years or something. And then they finally got a result. And they seem to be very happy. It only has to work once. It's a very good way of putting <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. It's in a movie, I think. <laughs> I don't remember which movie it is.
0: Did you have any freedom on what you worked on during
1: your phd or were these problems already there in some sense when i applied for my phd position it was on a particular topic uh, it was actually related to a theoretical framework that studies nonequilibrium systems and then when an, about the time i started there was a conference and they they had discussions on uh, you know problems related to thermodynamics of small systems I don't want to say that I found it very captivating and I started working on it immediately. I found that I can do those problems. Like my expertise was enough to work on those problems. And then as I started working on it, it became interesting to me. That's how I ended up in doing this particular project. And during the thesis, as we progressed uh, discussing and so on, the project automatically evolved in our discussions. And that's what we ended up doing in the end.
0: So after having done a PhD, what did you say about your outlook? Has it changed since the beginning? What did you want to know if you are a new PhD student now?
1: So I, I heard this, that in academia, a general problem is you don't know where it is leading. Like, you know, uh, after a while, you uh, to continue in academia, it's like a pyramid. There are fewer positions as you go up in education. So then uh, one has to be open to other options as well. It's very good that you think about other areas where your results are applicable because otherwise what can happen is there can be unnecessary pressure. And I'm also very open right now. I don't complete, I'm not completely sure if I will continue in academia. If we go back to
0: your research, you described how these systems move, for example pushed around by the molecules of water, and you used the word fluctuations in that, concept, mm-hmm. in that context.
1: Can you tell me what fluctuations mean? you are measuring something, and then there is an expected value of it. But you see a value that is slightly higher in one measurement and slightly lower in some other measurement. And then this pattern sort of erratically appears all over. So then then you say that your signal is noisy, it has some other you know fluctuations on, on top of it. But then there are meaningful ways of averaging out these fluctuations and then getting the desired data that you want that's a fluctuation. I mean, if I, if I look at, now go back to my pollen grain example, if you put it in water, it's getting kicks from the environment and it's moving around. So it's not constantly in a fixed position. And you said that there are meaningful ways to average out the fluctuations.
0: And these are a bit more complicated than just, there will be the same number of
1: fluctuations upwards and as they are downwards. Yes. Usually you have to characterize them with distributions. In the sense, uh, if it was always plus one and minus one, ideally what you want to say is that, for my system, this is the probability that I will experience this much fluctuation. And that is, uh, or this is the chance that I will experience this much fluctuation. And this, this object, which quantifies the chance of seeing this much fluctuation, is called a distribution. So we use distributions to characterize fluctuations. And you can get it by doing the experiment several times and then binning the values that you get then you get a distribution or you can start from a theoretical model and then predict that this may be the rate of fluctuations and then verify it in an experiment in in nature there are uh, it, it is known that there are fluctuations which fall to a different uh, oh, sorry fall to a universal class and so on so i mean certain type of systems no matter what the details of the system are it will always show certain kind of fluctuations. These things are generically known in many cases, uh, I mean, outside physics. If, if you look at different, for example, models of uh, stock exchange fluctuations and so on, maybe there are universal forms. In, one of, in my field, it is still an open problem. Uh, it's, it's still an open problem as to what kind of fluctuations are uh, experienced by microscopic machines. I mean, there, are, there is at least one universal principle known, which is it, it, it goes by the name fluctuation theorem. So, it, uh, in, in small scale systems, if you look at the fluctuations actually of a very useful object called entropy production, what it says is that these fluctuations are not arbitrary but it is constrained by a symmetry property. And the symmetry basically says that so you, your fluctuations in nature are expected to follow a behavior which makes sure that you get the desired answer in the end. How do you use this to characterize equilibrium? This quantity I talked about was entropy production. Entropy production is the rate at which a system is dissipating uh, energy to the environment. Entropy production keeps track of uh, how far the equilibrium is, uh, how far the system is from equilibrium, how non-equilibrium the system is. And then if I measure this entropy production itself, let's say, there will be fluctuations in it. And if you a system is more non-equilibrium when it is uh, dissipating more energy per unit time to the environment, we can measure entropy production in systems using uh, various... Uh, if it is a theoretically non-model, then we there are ways to computing it. And
0: then you have a theoretical model that calculates how much you ha- of this entropy production mm-hmm. you have for a system. Or if you're doing an experiment, you can measure it by
1: measuring how much energy was put into the... Yeah, ideally yes, but then the difficulty with small systems is that this heat that is coming out of it is also very small. So we cannot put a calorimeter there and then measure this heat. So then one has to have other ways of computing this heat that is coming from the system. And in my work, we came up with a framework that uses the fluctuations of uh, this system to quantify how much heat is coming out.
0: So this is your discovery or contribution in some sense, or way of approximating entropy production in microscopic systems.
1: Yeah. So uh, there, were, there was so I... an existing result which showed that we can put a lower bound on this uh, value for any system by measuring its fluctuations. And we showed that uh, if we put if we slightly modify their analysis then we can actually get the exact result exact value of uh, how much heat is gen- uh, coming out to the environment and and then then one can actually develop and people have developed algorithms uh, to analyze the systems data and and then get entropy production for the system
0: do you want to talk a bit more about um
1: Short term experiment limit. So previously, what was happening was that uh, when when you look at a system's trajectory, and then let's say I measure a system for hundred seconds. So if I am um, if I am monitoring a particle, then its its position as a function of time is a trajectory. So if I measure a tra- long trajectory of the system, and and then repeat these measurements, like take several copies of such a, such long trajectories, and then we perform a statistical analysis of these trajectories, then we can get a lower bound of production. This was known previously. okay. And then this lower bound gets closer to the actual value when the system is more and more closer to equilibrium. So then we thought about this, like why is uh, it working when the system is more and more close to equilibrium. So what is happening was that the actual value of how much uh, non is is also shrinking when you are close to equilibrium, and then we thought if we do a short experiment for a very non-equilibrium system, then the value measured will also be very small. So instead of a long, instead of a, the long trajectory from this
0: non-result, you short the trajectory.
1: Yeah, we shorten the trajectory and, and then uh, we do the same analysis. And uh, we found that it is giving the actual value, even for a very non euclidean system. The advantage is that we only need a short experimental trajectory. Like we can already take it from a long trajectory and chopping it into smaller and smaller pieces. The other advantage is that we don't need to do longer experiments now. Because if, if one does longer experiments, then one has to worry about exposing the system to the measurement apparatus for very long times, and then this is usually known to be hard. So now we can do shorter experiments and then get better results. So this was, uh, this was my particular finding in this, in this work. Very nice. And what do you see as a follow-up of these findings? Indeed, one interesting aspect is uh, looking at experimental system, which we are doing. So we are trying to see if it actually works in experiments. Does this theoretical, I mean they are expected to work, but what are the experimental limitations? We try to understand how does this theory work in practice. And by far we have uh, reasonably good results. So they are promising. We, we see it seem to work in experiments also, including including a biological system where it is a cell membrane in a at temperature. So we, we want to know how much entropy is produced in a cell when it is active. One of my other interests is uh, looking at small scale systems, what is called quantum mechanics becomes relevant. So if I take a system and then make it smaller and also cool down the temperature, then what can happen is that quantum mechanical properties of the system become relevant. And then uh, these such systems have been synthesized in the labs and we hope that they become useful components of you know, like a quantum computer which can do your computations much faster and so on. And this field of uh, quantum thermodynamics is actually looking into thermodynamics of small scale systems where quantum mechanics also becomes relevant. I have
0: to say that the quantum thermodynamics that I have been exposed to through some conferences maybe or some group seminars and so on has been really fascinating. So I think you are making a very, very nice choice of field.
1: Yeah, thanks. So I, I am trying to learn also.
0: Thank you, Shri. This has been really, really nice. And I feel like I have
1: learned a lot about an area of physics that I have always kind of ne- neglected, thermodynamics. Thanks. it was very nice talking to you also. And to just add to your point... Thermodynamics wasn't my favorite subject either. I, I found it while I was in school. It was maybe the most boring subject. I, I didn't imagine I would do a PhD in Thermodynamics. But yeah, when you, when you understand something, more and more it becomes interesting, I think. Goodbye. Bye.
0: You have listened to newfiket This was Irina talking to Shrikant. If you'd like to know more about Shrikan's research, you can find out more at our webpage nufiken.co. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook as Curious Nufiken in one word. This episode of Nufiken was published in march twenty twenty one.